welcome to The Pot of Gold, where we talk all things precious metals and their markets. Today, we look at the Fed's ongoing battle with inflation, the critical importance of energy security, and what's really driving gold. Geopolitics, or is this still a rates market? I'm your host, Shay Russell, and joining me today is Nick Frappel, ABC Refinery's Global Head of Institutional Markets. Nick, how are you, mate? Extremely well, thanks, Shay. Extremely well. Thank goodness uh, we've uh, um, not allowed that much time to lag between the uh, this uh, this podcast and the last one. Well, how could we? One of the most anticipated Federal Reserve meetings are finished up this week. All right, Nick, I do want to uh, get started with today because gold uh, is still struggling. It is well uh, at the time of making this podcast. It's sitting at 1670 per ounce and it is Friday, the 23rd of September. Tell me, Nick, how has gold positioning behaved with the FOMC now in our review mirror? Sure. So the main data point that we're looking at is the, um, the the Tuesday the 13th, and then I'll make a couple of comments on open interest and what we can see that's uh, been going on since then. So I can kind of take it up to the point of the FOMC itself, but I, I don't think there's necessarily been huge changes despite some real volatility uh, short, short term. Um, so if you look at that point up to the, the 13th, net short, I think, which is the most important takeaway here, the net short and managed money gold uh, grew again to minus 1.834 million. And it was just slightly higher than here in, in July of this year. Before that, you'd have to look back about three years to see more significant net shorts, you know, 3 million, 4 million uh, scan. So that's telling you that um, as an asset class, uh, those sort of sophisticated investors are betting on lower. Managed money longs had reduced a bit. They're about 8 million ounces long now. Managed money shorts, about 9.9, almost 10 million ounces short. That last increase in shorts um, was put on at a calculated uh, volume-weighted average price, about 17.24, so well in the money uh, when you look at subsequent price action. So since that data point, the 13th of September, uh, open interest on the CME has increased slightly and then declined a little bit. And looking at the price action, it looks to me as though there were some extra short positions put on, uh, the price dropped, and then uh, there was a little bit of short covering uh, that uh, took place just to sort of you know bring that open interest back again. Um, ETF positioning, uh, if you look at the last conversation we had with um, uh, 6th of September, about a million ounces of liquidation uh, since the sixth between the then and now. So um, fairly, fairly uh, again, sort of consistent with the outflows that you're seeing in the um, future space. Where does that leave us in terms of targets and sort of key levels? Uh, with the low at 1654, didn't get quite to the 1640 that we uh, talked about in our previous podcast, which was Friday the 16th. Um, since then, we've we've had some volatility, which... I guess you could expect around the FOMC, especially one that was so well telegraphed and really, really, um, really, uh, um, you know, kind of a key one, a big debate about whether base case scenario of 75 basis points or whether the we'd go for the 100 basis point move. We had a move up to 1688, back down to 1665, some pretty wild action on the day. And that's probably the most reliable thing about FOMC sort of news or, or uh, announcements is um, you don't really want to be short the very short dated volatility because you don't necessarily 
get a great idea about where prices are going, um, you know, up, down, uh, actually immediately post the news. But what you do tend to get is some some decent volatility, even on perhaps quite uninteresting um, stuff. And was 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 the Fed? I haven't had a chance to read the notes, so okay, this is not going to be a deep dive. But seventy five basis points was very much the base case scenario. The I think by the time we'd got just in front of the FOMC, hundred basis points had become a kind of a one in five probability. So targets still got plenty of targets. Obviously, with that with those whippy moves, short dated. Um, Short data targets, 1715, 1720s uh, levels on the upside. Downside back to 1645, 1650. And of course, because that's lower than the very recent low, if we did push back through downward, got down to those targets, that would nullify and completely knock out the point and figure targets to 1715. So that would create a whole new um, array of downside resistance. A um, little bit of 81. Uh, um, I think obviously 1690, we saw that move up, you know, banged up against the former support at 1690. Then 1709, 1723, nothing really, um, you know, unexpected there. So gold is likely to be may, uh, remain range bound for the moment. But tell me, Nick, where does gold sit in the Ichimoku cloud? We cannot have a conversation without knowing that. Well, it's it's definitely below uh, the, the weekly Ichimoku cloud by some margin. So... Um, some of those resistance levels are actually coming from the daily and the weekly Ichimoku cloud. So, from a a cloud perspective, that is a um, it's it's a negative trend, bearish trend, because the price is um, sort of lurking well below the cloud, and we'd expect on rallies. Um, and bearing in mind that you know there's there's a a reasonable. Uh, you know, reasonably large short position relative to the longs when net, net short. Um, that that's where we'd look at look to the uh, market clouds for 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 the first kind of resistance lines. So that's that's and, and you know at the moment we're quite a way below them, but maybe by the time we do our next podcast, maybe I'll sort of paint a bit more color in for that. Well, I look forward to that update next week. Now, we're going to jump over to silver. Now, unlike gold, silver's actually managed to hold on to its recent rally. It hasn't fallen uh, back to the lows that we saw earlier at the start of September. Tell me, uh, what's changed with sh- uh, silver over this past week since we've last spoken? Uh, it was still quite um, – people were still quite short silver just recently. Has that changed? Uh, more longs coming into the market just yet. Yeah, that's right. Positioning-wise um, tells – Tell the story really. The increase in net positioning um, is still short. Uh, it's about, I think, 42 million ounces short overall. But that week between the 6th and 13th of September, there was a net, net uh, increase of 82 million troy ounces. And how did that arise? I mean, basically, management money longs did increase. So, in stark contrast to gold. Um, and they, they bought about 22.5 million tri ounces. Managed money shorts, they decreased their positions. They were really short. Um, they decreased by buying back just under 60 million tri ounces. And that shift in positioning, just to give you an idea of where it took place in terms of volume weighted average, took place at sort of about 1887. Um, now, ETFs, again, in contrast to gold, uh, attracted about a 9 million tri ounce inflow over the last week. 
um, actually date-wise, I didn't really, I'm not sort of comparing like with like, doesn't really matter, but uh, but just from the last week's perspective, ETFs, 9 million ounces coming in. So the, the, again, the, the in contrast to gold, it's a positive story, positive inflows, or of course, short covering, but still positive inflows. Um, and the ETFs are um, kind of confirming that um, they're both sort of in sync, if you like. Um, where do I look at for resistance? And uh, without going into all of it, there's some of this is um, cloud-based and some of it is point and figure based. But um, I'm looking at resistance at 2087 or 2090, say, 22 dollars US dollars and 24 and a half US dollars. Um, quite a few targets in the medium term up to 22 dollars 50. Uh, in the medium term, there's a, a downside target to 1875, given the pretty decent move. Um, up, you know, that's reasonable. We could swing around a bit. Um, lower than that, you know, I, I wouldn't, I guess what I'm trying to say is I wouldn't particularly worry if it dropped to 1875. It just might be a kind of reaction to the recent um, recovery. But if it was much lower than that, then the outside, the upside targets get knocked out. So um, 1875, okay, um, just part of the general uh, volatility of the market. But yeah, definitely um, quite a few targets up to 2250. Uh, in the in the sort of the medium term. Uh, so it's a medium term target. Uh, sorry, the medium term for silver sounds a little bit bullish. Yeah, it's it is. I mean, and again, uh, especially if you look at the the weekly Ichimoku cloud. You know, silver is way below that, and really, really had a horrible looking plunge once it left that um, the sort of support level there, um, and it's chopped around. Actually, in the last few, you know, several weeks, it's uh, really chopped around. It's a, you know, it could be seriously unpleasant to trade. But nonetheless, um, you know what they say about silver, right? You know, making millionaires out of billionaires. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But nonetheless, still quite an enjoyable metal to trade, even whilst you're doing it for some inexplicable reason. Um, Silver actually remains just sort of as leaving a positioning aside, silver has been pretty tight lately. And again, that sort of reflects, um, you know, I think you know, very decent physical demand despite the, you know, the sort of negative looking price performance. Um, obviously good, good, steady physical offtake, as you'd expect. Got a lot of fans at these price levels. And um, that is somewhat translated into a little bit of tightness um, quite persistent tightness. Some of that as well might be financing cargoes that are on the sea, um, waiting to go from, say, one smelter to another refiner, um, for example. That's uh, often the case. All right, Nick, we are going to switch gears and talk about probably our second favourite topic here at the Pot of Gold. And I do want to touch on the Fed uh, and what's come out of the FOMC. Now, um, it's been an eventful week with not only the Fed uh, Fed raising by 75 basis points, but we've also had some geopolitical tensions come out as well. Now, we did have quite a technical overview of what's happened in the gold market before and by positioning. But tell me, how have these two events, uh, both Putin uh, rallying the troops, so to speak, uh, and the Fed tightening again. How is this moving the gold market? And what is it actually doing to um, how investors are positioning themselves in gold? Yeah, sure. Um, like you say, it was, it, it is, and was a, a, a very well um, a, a, an FOMC meeting of considerable interest. Um, so, you know, and, and they didn't they didn't shock because the 
the there was pretty much fully priced in that it, it was fully priced in to be at least 75 basis points and eight, probably 80 percent priced in um that it would be 75. so um what happened i, I think the messaging that's that's you probably would take away from this and i think a lot of people are taking away from this is that is that even if it wasn't 100 basis points it's clearly a a world of of longer for higher and possibly higher terminal rate for on the fed side um with uh with uh you know maybe maybe beyond 450 uh you know maybe we can look into that more deeply um over the next couple of podcasts but longer for higher tighter um sorry not longer for higher higher for longer (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so um yeah so so serious timing lots of language around the fed um you know ready to vanquish uh inflation um despite the fact that will involve a considerable amount of pain um in various parts of the economy and of course much of the rest of the central banking world moving um not necessarily in lockstep in terms of the scale of the rates somewhere maybe kind of worse but um you know you're seeing the boe 50 basis points you know it's it's all part of the 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 the, the worldwide monetary tightening carries on with the exception of uh with the exception of of course the second and third largest economies china and so it's china and japan uh japan is um you know probably certainly trying to defend 10-year yields and that is an important part of their um, yield curve management strategy in terms of trying to keep monetary policy easy they've had um, a blip up in inflation Um, it'd be it'd be inflation that pretty much anybody else would love to have Um, but nonetheless it is still a challenge even at those lower rates to their yield curve um uh, sort of management uh, strategy so uh, the question is is will they be able to hold the line with 10-year yields and if they can't will we see um a sort of the the end sort of reverting at the moment you know it's 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 too early to call despite the conversation we had last week it's still early to call sort of a, a serious top in the end but you could see from the jawboning and uh, the rate the checking that the boj was doing in the fx market um, that you know we 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 hear about you know they obviously don't check with us but you know we hear it from other people uh then what what uh what happened you know you got a really really sharp move um an appreciation in the yen i think it you know moved like three three big figures or whatever um now that was probably symptomatic of the presence of a lot of the shorts that i mentioned last time we talked about the yen there are a lot of shorts out there they will want to take money off the table if they feel threatened or you know, if, you know, if they're concerned that there might be a a move. Anyway, that's a lot about the yen. But um, but uh, the the other thing which which uh, you know you you mentioned was geopolitics and Putin. Uh, Putin obviously, like I, I'm not a in any way a kind of you know this is just me perhaps talking about what I what I see or sense or um, follow elsewhere. Um, there's no doubt about it that with things having have gone extremely badly for the Russian army, um, particularly in the last three three weeks, two weeks, three weeks, um, and Putin is almost certainly facing a considerable amount of pressure from what you might call his right flank um, domestically, saying, you know, what is going on and why aren't you doing 
more about it. Um, or, you know, there will definitely be some pressure there. So uh, he has um, passed a new rule in the Duma about um, that effectively, you know, can I guess can be summed up in the one word mobilization. Probably another time for talking about how that works, but the fact is it won't happen very quickly and it won't solve their problems. So their problems are not about lack of manpower in the, in the sort of sense of how many people boots on the ground. That is not the issue here. Um, he did allude, I think, as well to really um, getting quite, um, you know, what's the right word? One doesn't want to treat it too lightly, but at the same time, um, completely losing his, you know, bits. And, uh, and of course, Instantly, that put a, a, a bid under under spot gold. Saw it rally, you know, ten to fifteen bucks pretty quickly and pretty relentlessly. Um, now, since then, the price has rolled over. I think it made a high of 75, 70, 75 80, whatever on spot on that particular day. Uh, it rolled over sharply. It's been back into the sixteen fifties, back up to the test the sixteen ninety. But the reason it did that is all about the Fed, and that's why fundamentally. The gold market is still a rates market. So the other the other the other point I'd make about that geopolitics piece is that so often a piece of geopolitical tension enters the room, and probably this time we saw some you know concerned, careful shorts, um, to, you know just protecting themselves and buying back. And that was probably what lifted the price so well. And I think we saw you know some decent selling on the day beforehand, and it was met with a pretty good bid all the way through. So that's again probably shorts kind of thinking, yeah, this is a level where we would take something back. But price pings higher in when when it's driven by geopolitics. It's always impressive how short-lived that those those rallies are. You know, if you look at past situations, you know, Iraq and so on. Fortunately, there aren't too many to point at. Anyway, the point is, is that gold couldn't rally extensively despite that, um, you know, sort of saber rattling. Actually, in a more quieter week when it's not so eventful, maybe we should go through and talk about how gold does have very short, sharp rallies on dramatic events, but often sells back off later on, uh, mm. because that is, that's a fascinating look at gold's behaviour in itself. Uh, there's sort of something um, I wanted to move on to, and this is a subject you and I have d- danced around a little bit in the past couple of podcasts, uh, and this is a supply of Russian gas to Europe. Now, both you and I have a fascination for the energy markets. Um, obviously, Europe is doing everything it can to move away from Russian gas, uh, I wish I could remember what number podcast we talked about, how hard it would be to adequately replace the supply of Russian gas into yeah. Europe or even in global supply. Uh, tell me, with Europe rushing, oh, so Germany in particular, rushing to build LNG terminals that they can continue to port LNG to, um, LNG to support themselves through winter, uh, you know, what's your quick bird's eye view of, of what's happening with the Russian gas market? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the the thing is, I guess before sort of any of this, um, there is the element that that you know Europe, especially if the weather is particularly cold, you know Europe faces an extremely difficult time, and they're uh, in the short term. So none of this is about um, genuinely short term fixes. It's more about perhaps this, like you say, a bird's eye view uh, of of saying, well, how do things pan out, or uh, in terms of Europe trying to pivot away from over-reliance on Russian gas, and to some extent, actually, uh, given you know they weaponized it, which is really you know a one-shot deal. 
um, Russia is too is also over reliant on one customer, if you like, which you know as as a as a as a sort of a geographic zone. So it's kind of a very very loose take on that, not loose take, but you know. So and it, it's partly also to sort of perhaps refresh some of the knowledge around where people think that you know gas it's you know you can pipe it up here you can pipe it there but actually you can't really um you know there's there's only so much infrastructure and so much of that infrastructure uh has been built to facilitate the movement of gas westwards um into europe so stuff comes out of the ground it's treated off it goes but if you close that pipeline or you know effectively you know you say right it's it, I'm not sending any more there where do you send it and how can you send it there? So um, there are a couple of uh, alternatives. These aren't the only alternatives. So I stress that for any um, uh, natural gas mavens listening in, that this is not, you know, sort of the, 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 this is not even the beginning word, let alone the last word. But, you know, if you look at things like power of Siberia one and two, um, just a couple of things about capacity and timing. Um, power of Siberia is currently 38 billion cubic meters. Um, eventually it'll be about 61 billion cubic meters when complete. Um, power of two, sorry, power of, <laughs> power of Siberia two capacity. Now in 2030, so, you know, optimistically seven years away, 50 billion uh, cubic meters. So co collectively in 2030, they should be 111 billion cubic meters. That's less than two thirds of European gas demand just pre-COVID which is 180 billion cubic meters. So if you just look at those guys, those those sort of exit routes for gas that can't, let's say, you know, they say, well, we're not going to send it to Europe, we're going to send it elsewhere. In seven years' time, those two major pipelines will take two-thirds of what goes to Europe. So there's a natural constraint. And there's a couple of other constraints because not only just a time constraint because you've got to build the infrastructure, but also a lot of the gear that you need to compress the gas and keep it going through that circuit is gear that comes from the West. So if you're under sanctions, that construction and all of the associated infrastructure is going to be impaired in some way or another. So that's one thing I'd say. Um, then that's, that's it, if you like, just a very, very, very quick and partial view of the challenges that Russia faces pivoting away from Europe. Um, incidentally, although it's not vast, I mean, they're not burning all the gas that doesn't go to Europe, but they are burning about half a percent, I think, of the gas that would go to Europe, and they're flaring that off, and they're flaring that off, you know, to manage pressures and so on within the, within the, the, the sort of circuitry. Um, and let me, let me sort of look at, um, you know, there's a, a research company, Richtad, that, uh, they said that, you know, it's difficult to actually pick out the exact flaring volumes, but about 4.34 million cubic meters per day, 1.6 billion cubic meters annualized, and it's about half a percent of the gas demand that um, would normally go through Europe. It's pretty marginal from a demand point of view, but it's pretty ugly from a, um, if you like, a, an environmental point of view. Um, and, and, you know, you're doing that for partly because you're not optimizing the system that was designed to send all that gas to 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 Europe. So what is what is Europe doing? Uh, and again, this will take time too. So this is not about next winter, but it's 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 about the sort of you know the pivot away. 
Um, European LNG uh, liquid natural gas plans, they're looking obviously to reduce reliance on Russian energy. Europe collectively plans to increase LNG import capacity by about 42% over the next four years at 2026. That's, well, three years really, if they manage to keep up with that rate of work. That's going to increase capacity to 278 million tonnes per year of LNG. Um, 278 million tons per year of LNG, 1 million tons of LNG is about 1.4 billion, roughly, it's a bit of a range, take it roughly 1.4 billion cubic meters of natural gas. So LNG import capacity will go to something like, if my calculator is correct, 370 to 390 billion cubic meters. Um, that looks like it will exceed you know, that. If that all, if all of that capacity is built, and you referred to the floating capacity that's coming in and so on, if that capacity is built, then that shouldn't be a pinch point for the wider infrastructure. However, one of the things that is a concern is that, according to Argus, that um, produced a lot of valuable work on on this kind of thing, um, that would be quite challenging from the point of view of like, at the same time, the global liquefaction capacity has to grow with it. And to 2025, you know, that's, um, that's, that's, you know, it's, it's, well, the constraint is not necessarily the building, the import capacity, your constraint is elsewhere, in terms of producing the um, liquefaction capacity worldwide that can keep up with that sort of demand. Um, I wouldn't say demand, but the the actual the the capacity. So that's that's kind of you know there are many many bits on this pieces on this chessboard, um, and you're kind of obviously got to assume that when people say we want to do this by 26 or 2030, whenever you've got to assume that everything think things don't go wrong in the meantime or, or seriously wrong. So if you look at the next half decade, 2027 28. Um, it's obviously going to lay out a new configuration for energy security for, for both sides. And obviously, you know, when it comes to genuine security, the security here we're talking about is Europe. Europe will gradually become less reliant on Russian gas, but the pace of that does depend on global liquefaction capacity. Russia will become less reliant on Europe as the ultimate market, the ultimate market of consumption. You also seed ground to other producers and other um, sources of supply. And in this, as in so many other areas, you know, Russia is hitching its longer-term wagon to China, and that's a whole story in itself. All right, Nicole, we might have to delve into Russia's uh, hitching its wagon to China in our in the upcoming podcast because we have run out of time for today. Um, listen, we've reached our point where we talk about our key takeaways, and I actually uh, love your point on the liquefaction capacity and how that uh, has to grow in order for, order for these targets to meet. Uh, I often, in a lot of my work, talk about how we need to understand the fourth and the fifth counterparty risk really yes. to all of these processes because often we just talk about the things that are visible and not the the people and the the companies and the manufacturers that make all of these pieces happen. Uh, however, as our podcast comes to an end, what is the key point from today that you would like people to sit with over the week? A key point is the continuation of the, the rate story um, and the uh, the onward march of monetary tightening. And there's something I didn't mention, which I meant to mention, but we talked about it well, before. It's perfect to mention in that <laughs> but, I'd love it if you did um, again. And, but I believe you are having a, uh, um, a chat um, later or your uh, panel later with uh, a guy I think we both really admire, Charlie Morris. 
And here's a great model for um, fair value model uh, or fair valuation model for gold. And at the moment, if I understand it correctly, that fair valuation model, which is based on kind of modeling gold as a 20, 20 year zero coupon um, bond or 20 year duration bond, that's not zero coupon, um, is uh, it's several percentage points, showing gold as several percentage points over his fair valuation model. And that, I think, tying in together with what we're seeing on the rates front should be something that people are aware of. Um, his, his, his fair valuation model is not like a day trading device by any means, um, but it is extremely good and interesting go-to uh, for somebody who wants to, anybody who wants to look at where they think gold, um, where they think fair valuation should be that isn't just plucked out of thin air. Um, so that would be my... Uh, big takeaway. All right, Nick, that is an excellent takeaway to land on. Uh, I want to say thank you very much for this week. It's been particularly insight- insightful, especially given the events that have shaped markets. Uh, Nick, thank you. thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thanks, Shay. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to get a better understanding of the technical indicator Nick uses, the Ichimoku Cloud. It's available on most trading platforms. Alternatively, you can check the show notes over at abcrefinery.com forward slash podcast. Here you can sign up to receive more information from Nick Frappel, including his monthly report where he incorporates technical analysis alongside macro market commentary. That's all from us today at ABC Refinery. We look forward to seeing you next time. <laughs>